Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 160 and it's 6th of June 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Um, it's been good. It's actually been a few weeks since we last recorded this <laughs> yes. time. You, you know, just life happens, so it's all cool. Um, but yeah, the most exciting thing that happened to me since we last recorded was I had a friend who was travelling in the Scottish Highlands, you know, just like for a walking holiday, basically. Um, and he is not a Star Wars fan, but he knew I was a Star Wars fan. So he just like randomly messaged me on Facebook and sent me like a picture and there was like a base for like filming like far in the distance he said oh hi rachel hope you're well um i just um saw this and the one the locals told me they're filming star wars and i was like what <laughs> and i basically like sent him on a mission to get as close to the set as possible and take pictures um which he very kindly obliged me by doing and he went up close and he was literally able to get right up to the spaceship that they'd built for filming very and cool. it was for andor so that is extremely exciting i wish i'd been there that would be more exciting <laughs> but i'm still happy i was able to viscerally experience it through my friend i haven't really been following any of the andor stuff was it known that they were filming there it wasn't known they were filming in scotland i don't think no okay, so yeah. that was a bit of a revelation cool um, that my friend discovered which is really cool um they have been doing a lot of location filming though um, but in different parts of the UK, the loca- particular location they were using in Scotland was really spectacular. You know, it had a proper otherworldly vibe to it. So I can mm. definitely see why they'd go to somewhere that remote to film because, yeah, it could easily be dressed up to be a completely different planet. And you lit up the subreddit. <laughs> I did. I did. About 700 upvotes, I believe. So it's very, very good for my karma record. <laughs> Well, I don't think very much has been coming out. I know we have recently had some pictures of Diego, right? But other yes. than that, it's like no one knows anything. Yeah, we don't know at all what the plot's going to be or anything substantive. And like the pictures my friend took of the set, they're really cool. You know, it's awesome to see like a spaceship, but it's literally just a spaceship. <laughs> and I know some people can read a lot into spaceships, but I just see a spaceship and I'm like, that looks cool. Nice. And that's the end. Yeah. You know, I cannot analyse that thing or get any more information out of it. Um, so, yeah, like, we know nothing about Andor, and that's kind of refreshing. You know, I feel like that's going to be the case more and more going forward, because I think with the sequel trilogy, there was just this unprecedented level of interest and speculation around them. Mm. You know, so there were people literally with business models that relied on them getting regular Star Wars spoilers. Yeah. Whereas now, there's just not that same level of interest in something like Andor, and it is just going to have to speak for itself as a TV show, and I think that's good, really. I do think also, for the sequel trilogy, a lot of the leaks were coming out of Bad Robot, who obviously aren't going to be involved in other Star Wars projects. Yeah. That's very, very true. I, I just would love to know what happened with that. You know, I'd love that leaker person who was like spilling all this stuff to like write a anonymous biography you know, of what the <laughs> hell was going on at Bad Robot <laughs> to cause people to like leak stuff to like random Redditors. I wouldn't, yeah, what is the incentive? You're not being paid for it or anything. Yeah, exactly. Were they like looking at the rushes of Rise of Skywalker and being like, gosh, this is bad. People need to need know to what they're walking into. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got to give an early warning system. 
Oh my goodness. Um, and yeah, also yesterday I rewatched Revenge of the Sith for the first time in a few years. I'm just prepared for this episode. And yeah, that was really fun. Like I said on Twitter, but honestly rewatching it, I was surprised by how funny it was. There's just a lot of silliness in that film, you know, and there's just like bizarre, surreal moments like Palpatine saying, my little green friend. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's also Grievous, who is silly. (laughs) Exactly. Fundamentally silly. And I I just kind of love that, you know, so I feel like in the fandom's imagination, Revenge of the Sith is a super dark tragedy. And it is obviously quite dark in places and it has a tragic conclusion with Anakin and Padme. But overall, there's lots of goofiness in that movie. Oh, yeah. And I feel that's also worth celebrating because I found it quite delightful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's goofiness in every Star Wars film, but you're right in like what people take away from it and what it kind of comes to be thought of as in the fandom over the years. Uh, It's kind of nice to go back to the source material sometimes, isn't it? Exactly. It puts it all into perspective, I think. Right, so let's move into the news. So the first thing we want to discuss is that J.J. Abrams has been giving interviews to various outlets because it's the 10th anniversary of Super 8, which is wild to me that it's 10 years old because I remember seeing that in cinemas. Ooh, spooky. We wanted to talk about this because it has ramifications for an ongoing topic of discussion in Star Wars discourse, particularly Star Wars sequel trilogy discourse. So yeah, I was wondering if you could read out the bit I've highlighted, please, Kirsty. And this is from Collider. I asked him about this creative handoff. Specifically, does he feel the Star Wars trilogy would have benefited from him having a plan from the beginning? In answering, Abrams drew from his wealth of experience in television. I've been involved in a number of projects that have been, in most cases, series, that have ideas that begin the thing where you feel like you know where it's going to go, and sometimes it's an actor who comes in, Other times it's a relationship that as written doesn't quite work and things that you think are going to be just so well received just crash and burn. And other things that you think like, oh, that's a small moment or that's a one episode character suddenly become a hugely important part of the story. I feel like what I've learned is a lesson a few times now and it's something that especially in this pandemic year working with writers has become clear. The lesson is that you have to plan things as best as you can and you always need to be able to respond to the unexpected. And the unexpected can come in all sorts of forms. And I do think that there's nothing more important than knowing where you're going. (laughs) My takeaway from JJ's way of answering questions that are about something very specific is that JJ Abrams would be very good at writing fortune cookie messages. (laughs) He reminds me of a politician almost. It's like (laughs) he tries to say everything within a statement so that like whatever can be chosen as the soundbite it, yeah. it's not going to commit him to too much <laughs> exactly it's like the ultimate Rorschach test um, but yeah obviously the question it seems was about Star Wars but he obviously chose to frame his response as saying in the general course of my career I have learnt the following lessons um, but yeah I guess I don't know we've talked about this a lot but the feeling I find inescapable is, oh, JJ, I wish you'd just learnt the lesson about having a plan before you started work on Star Wars. Yeah. I think what makes it um, a bit of a complicated discussion for the fandom is that people maybe have different ideas of what a plan would be. Mm-hmm. Like whether that's actually, this is the plot that goes across all three movies and we can't deviate from that. Or 
general sense of the character's arcs or a general sense of the themes that you're exploring and what you would like to be the resolution of that like what what would you be saying overall Mm. um and it's probably extra complicated when you have multiple creators and of course jj started the trilogy thinking that he was just going to do that first movie yeah so he had a totally different approach um yeah there's probably a lots of looking back and thinking what what might have made things different yeah so it is interesting because obviously when he did just do the force awakens on the understanding that that was going to be the only film of the new trilogy he directed he was presumably at peace with not having control over where things went next you know he accepted that he knew that was part of the deal he was signing up for but then when he did ultimately decide to come back he clearly looked back at what ryan did and he didn't like all of ryan's choices you know and he wanted things to go in different directions from what ryan had chosen and i think that's a really sad lesson in a way you know that you can think that you're fine with the story going wherever you know when you think that you're not gonna have to be involved again at all but then when you do come back and get reinvolved you're like no actually i don't really like this and I, I do just find it quite baffling because obviously it's not like he was unaware of what Ryan was doing. You know, Ryan was watching the rushes from The Force Awakens and we don't know the extent to which they spoke to each other, but they clearly did on at least a handful of occasions. You know, it wasn't like complete radio silence between them. So, yeah, it's always just going to be a bit of a baffling and frustrating mystery to me. Yeah, I think this is never really going to be put to bed now because it's like this ongoing question... And I ask myself sometimes, I'm like, would I rather have The Last Jedi or would I rather have an entire trilogy created and helmed by one person? And I guess that person would have been JJ. Yeah. And you just wouldn't have had this other, you wouldn't have had this other path that it would have gone on. But, you know, even with JJ not coming back, we have Duel of the Fates from Colin Trevorrow and that, it kind of upholds certain things that The Last Jedi does, but it also undermines other things and things that the rise of skywalker does similarly in time terms of like going well actually there's more to the story of ray's parents being nobodies and yeah. kylo not knowing her beforehand and all this sort of stuff you're ray ray salada right <laughs> and i killed your parents when i was 15 <laughs> <laughs> just you know oh. so it's not necessarily like it would have been this perfect fit otherwise um, yeah yeah, it's just very interesting. It so it means that like even if it was the case where like each film would have been made by a different person, it's like, did you really not all sit down together and kind of figure out and again I'm not talking about specific plot points. I'm like, what were you trying to say? Like, why was it important to Ryan? And I I do know why it was important to Ryan that Ray's parents were revealed to be a nobody and that she really knew that all along because he said so, but then those choices can be undermined by what comes next and it's like once you have the whole thing stepping back you know i mean i i still enjoy the sequel trilogy i love those characters and i, I love many moments from it um so it's not uh, it's hard because then you see people like using these comments that are often kind of like packaged into clickbaity headlines to disparage the entire thing and like yeah. Disney royally messed this up. It's like, well, it's a bit more complicated and nuanced than that. Yeah, I do think there's a lot of throwing the baby out of the bathwater, um, like in discussions about the sequel trilogy now. 
because yeah people like obviously it's not perfect you know and in rise of skywalker it certainly stumbles at the end of the race if you will in our opinion lots of people love that movie and think it fits very well with the rest of the trilogy yeah no exactly and for those people like it all works very well as a cohesive trilogy and that's awesome but i think even for us like where obviously we don't like that third movie it doesn't take away from the fact that we love the first two movies and we love the characters you know and we still feel that like attachment to them and we find this meaning in their stories and yeah I, I don't always see that reflected in the coverage of the sequel trilogy and I find that quite frustrating so that's probably why I should go into journalism so I can write positive <laughs> headlines about the sequel trilogy <laughs> yeah. yeah oh I don't know and yeah I guess in terms of the plan like I just wish they'd done something where and obviously I know Carrie's death changed this, but obviously like for the first two movies, it's clear that Han was the central like legacy character in that first movie. Luke was the central legacy character in the middle movie. And I wish there had always been a plan for Leia to be the central legacy character in the final movie. Because in that Jewel of the Fate script that Trevor wrote, he wrote that draft when Carrie was still around. You know, he wrote that with the understanding that he'd have Carrie Fisher there to use. I haven't read it. Is she pretty minor character? She's important, you know, she has stuff to do, but there's like no like real stuff going on with her and Kylo, at least oh, not that okay. I remember, you know, and there's like no meaningful reconciliation between them, hmm. which is like a massive wasted opportunity to me. Yeah, like it's something that even Rise of Skywalker attempts to do that, you know, like provide a kind of reunion with mother and son. It bungles it, in my opinion, but it does try. Right. And in my opinion, it tries more than even Jewel of the Fates did. And yeah, it's wild to me that Jewel of the Fates didn't seem to want to engage with that. Yeah, it's just interesting to see what each creator seems to value within the story and like what should matter to the characters. Yeah. Because to us, that would be a given, but obviously not to Colin. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. I need to go back and read that script again, actually, because I want to make sure I'm not misrepresenting him. And if I am, I'll just delete this section. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a really interesting thing to consider. And yeah, I'll never understand some people's creative process, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, have, is that everything you want to say about the JJ thing, Kirsty? Or anything I guess else? so. I mean, I sort of... I... I... <sighs> I feel bad for him in a way because everything is kind of getting blamed on him whereas mm. it does seem to kind of come down to a practical they didn't have enough time they weren't given enough time by Disney they wanted to get yeah. that movie out in December 2019 so yeah. you know I, I wonder if JJ had been given more time would he have maybe not necessarily told a drastically different story but would the execution have been more polished better um, yeah. more interesting than kind of a Return of the Jedi. I think that's kind of where I fall, like in terms of my assessment of it, because yeah, I, I try to like have some sympathy for JJ because I do think he's like a very sincere fan of Star Wars, you know, I think he loves it and I think he would have gone into it with the best of intentions. And obviously they were paying him like millions of dollars, you know, so it wasn't completely like altruistic. <laughs> you know, but I do think he really wanted to make a good film, you know, and some part of him has got to know that Rise of Skywalker didn't turn out as he wanted and yeah I'm sure that's like a sucky thing to carry with you you know when you realize that you messed up but yeah I don't think it was completely on his shoulders that it went wrong basically there was lots of 
different factors feeding into that movie ending up being rather messy shall we say yeah i'm still mad about kelly though yes i think that's <laughs> objectively that unforgivable <laughs> and that is a hundred percent something jj could have done better with so yeah my sympathy doesn't extend that far <laughs> oh also raven the last dragon is on disney plus for free now so go and watch that and support kelly marie tram please thank you yeah it's lovely yeah it's a really nice movie um okay cool so the next thing we want to discuss is that Amelia Clark has been talking about Kira again, which is very exciting. Um, could you read out the little excerpt I have here, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. During a recent interview with Comic Book, Clark shared her reaction to Kira's return during the original trilogy era in the Star Wars comic books published by Marvel. Kira's reappearance was not only a surprise for readers, but also for Clark herself. She seemed genuinely excited at the prospect of fans getting to see and learn more about Kira, since her backstory wasn't fully explored in Solo a Star Wars story. Clark said, It means so much, it means the absolute world. I know her backstory, I know her history. Maybe the movie didn't get to go there, but that was such an honour and a privilege to be part of that universe as an actor. So then to see the character actually be taken on to the origin of all of it, bringing it on home to the family in that way, cemented it in a way I was not expecting to feel as moved as I was by that. Do you think that means she's read Most Wanted by Ray Carson? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love that. No, that is interesting. Like, reading that, I'm a little bit confused. I have kind of the impression from how she's phrasing that, that maybe she thinks that the inclusion of Kira in the comic books is like a prequel thing, you know, set before we see Kira in Solo, or oh, at least in The Gap. I read you know. it differently. Okay, how did you read it? When she says, like, taking it to the origin, I read that to mean it was bringing her forward into the era of the original trilogy so like that's Ah. the beginning of star wars not in a chronological sense but kind of where it all began right yeah that makes a lot more sense (laughs) just to kind of know that kira is alive and still you know active within the story somewhere in the background during that era that would be quite cool wouldn't it yeah no definitely like neither of us read the comics but i still thought it was really cool to see that kira was coming back in those because I don't know I guess I'm just like a victim of low expectations sometimes (laughs) but (laughs) I just assumed they might have a thing where Kira died not too long after the events of Solo basically you know because obviously she's shown to be working for Maul I thought there's lots of potential for like backstabbing and like offing her basically and I'm really happy that you know the comic book I think takes place 10 years after Solo she outlives Maul Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So she's the ultimate winner in the situation. <laughs> um, and yeah, so she's still running around for a really long time. And that's very exciting to me. So I'm super glad they're clearly keeping that character open for more stories. Maybe on Disney Plus? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I feel like a broken record. But, you know, I honestly think Kira is by far the most interesting character in that movie. You know, she just has so many layers of like intrigue to her and I think Amelia did a really good job with bringing that like emotional aspect to the character as well Mm. so yeah I would love to see her get her own show or at least feature prominently in a Disney plus show at some point she might show up in the Lando series we don't know anything about that yet yeah that's a really good point and like we don't even know if Donald Glover's coming back for that right it would be crazy if he didn't but yeah I did think that was strange when they announced it. They didn't mention him because, like, maybe the contract's still kind of being worked out. Yeah, um, yeah, because it would be, it would be strange if he wasn't. Yeah, 
that'd be very peculiar indeed um so yeah hopefully we have even more kira on the horizon and yeah hopefully in a medium that we're more likely to consume <laughs> sorry and i don't mean any shade i saw the, the panels it's cool that yeah, she was no, the there. panels she are really cool like amelia <laughs> yeah no she looked fabulous she looked great um but yeah you know there's just only so much time we have you know and the comics are like a whole of a world basically and if you go down that rabbit hole it's a very deep rabbit hole so yeah you have to draw a line somewhere yeah i'm amazed by people who manage to keep up with star wars in all of its mediums i just oh my don't, goodness don't know how yeah. you can do that yeah no mad respect <laughs> i just <laughs> yeah i wouldn't be able to do it um okay cool so just quickly because again we're gonna have a proper bad batch like catch up when the whole thing's done but we just wanted to briefly acknowledge there have been three new episodes of the bad batch since we last recorded those were cornered rampage and decommissioned and we're not going to be talking about them in like great depth um but yeah we did just want to like touch upon a few things so yeah we had fennec back in cornered how did you like seeing fennec back kirsty i did like seeing her um she doesn't seem to age between <laughs> Bad Batch and Mando. I guess that's just because Ming Na Wen looks so great. <laughs> yeah. Because she's meant to be well, she must be very young in this series, right? Like early twenties, mid twenties? Yeah. I know there's a line like they said about her like being brand new to the scene. You know, okay. she's like a fresh bounty hunter basically. So yeah, it would make sense if she's early twenties. Like how long before Mando is the Bad Batch set? Is it like 20 years? Well, it's just as the Empire's forming, I guess. So yeah, it's it's over 20 years because we've got 19 years between Bad Batch and A New Hope, right? And then Mando's yeah. hmm, three or four years after Return of the Jedi, maybe? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a long time. Yeah, no, it really is. Like, it yeah, like, gosh, it, it gets a bit confusing, doesn't it? she's wearing it? the these... same outfit. <laughs> <laughs> she takes care maybe, of it all that time. Yeah, maybe it's like a Batman thing where she, like, opens up her closet and it's just, like, ten identical <laughs> outfits. She just, like, picks one. <laughs> yeah, it was lovely to see her. I loved seeing her in Amiga. And um, I just I find it interesting that she, like, has this pre-existing knowledge of and, like, relationships, however, kind of adversarial although we'll see how it evolves with clones and then she's going to team up with Boba. So like, yes. it, are we going to get in the book of Boba Fett what I was kind of hoping for in Mando with his return? Some kind of like exchange between them that acknowledges that his identity is kind of mixed up with all of these clones. Like, what does that mean for him? I'd love some kind of acknowledgement of that. Yeah, no, that would be interesting. Um yeah does the clone wars go into that at all oh god i can't remember there are obviously episodes with young boba um but i can't remember if like any of the other bounty hunters that he's with kind of bring it up as a that's kind of weird that you share the face with all of these clones <laughs> yeah because like he was brought up like alongside them yeah really, wasn't he well so, kind of kept it's... separate but yeah on camino yeah no so yeah like some of those clones in theory would have been his childhood friends and playmates but well maybe or maybe he didn't have any friends i don't know yeah maybe <laughs> i guess he does seem a bit like a loner doesn't he so yeah. yeah i guess that's more likely interpretation but yeah i also found it just interesting that there is someone like hunting after omega you know because 
like when at, in the first episode of the Bad Batch, like Omega is obviously different from the others. You know, like she seems to be the only female like child there on the base, and yeah, she has like the cool little like head like headpiece thing like you know like the jewel kind of that she's wearing on her on her head yeah um yeah so she stands out in several ways but there's no indication that she has like special protection there's no like security that she's under or anything but it's clear that when she's gone that someone suddenly wants her back in a really big way and obviously the show is making that a mystery as well because the bad batch are trying to find out who hides fennec um and yeah i'm curious to find the answer to that too yeah, because at first I was like, well, surely it just has to be kind of the Empire, like, wanting her. But yeah, maybe not. Maybe it's something more complex. Yeah. And if they do want her, like, why? Why is she so important? Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. All they Hopefully. want is to study her blood. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> oh, God. Like, I love that line lives. from Mando so much. <laughs> There's not going to be like a special edition of Rise of Skywalker in 10 years where like you zoom out and you see in one of the like tubes or whatever it is, there's like a mega floating in it. <laughs> Along with Grogu. <laughs> Coming in 2031, the Star Wars Episode 9 special edition. <laughs> Sorry. It's all coming together. Yeah, I'm a monster. I'm a monster. Ignore me. Um... But yeah, yeah, I love the vibes of, of that episode. Like, I'm obviously not the first one to say it, but it felt really Attack of the Clones, like, speed of chase style. Yes. It was really fun. Yeah, no, it was really good. And I've also really got to praise the animation in these episodes. They look really beautiful. You know, there's clearly lots of, like, resources that have gone into them, and it's, like, super nice. Like, I'm genuinely mm-hmm. impressed by how good it all looks. Yeah, the backgrounds are gorgeous. Yeah, it's really well done. Um... Then, like, Rampage, like, the middle one of this batch of episodes, <laughs> batch, um, like, that was probably the one that left, like, this mildest impression to me. It's kind of filler, you know, and that's not fair, you know, it's too easy to say that an episode of a show is filler, so they're kind of all filler in their own ways. Um, but yeah, it's basically about them trying to find a young Rancor, but they don't know it's a Rancor, so that's the twist. Um, and yeah, I knew you had some feelings about, <laughs> like, um... Oh god, Bib Fortuna coming to pick up the baby Rancor at the end and it turning out the Rancor was for Jabba, didn't you, Kirsty? Well, I think you could tell earlier on because talk- Sid was talking about the huts or something. Some- someone brought up the huts. Right. So I was like, yeah. oh, it's got to be... I mean, maybe not the same Rancor, but like maybe they had more than one. Yes. Um, yeah, Bib Fortuna is showing up in all sorts of places. <laughs> Gets around. Becoming a main character. Uh, I really liked Sid. I thought she was a great character. Very fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, but this is just something that I have to accept Star Wars is going to do <laughs> over and over. So I'm not yeah. like, I'm not angry about it. I just, you know, oh, Star Wars, everything's got to connect. Every got to give it a little wink. The, the, the same one that you recognize from the other thing. Um, whatever, you know. Yeah. In my head, I'm choosing to believe it's a different Rancor because, like, for some arbitrary reason, that makes it better to me. Um, I guess maybe I just don't want Moochie to die a horrible death. I know, that's the thing. You don't want to think about that part. Yeah, no, exactly. Because, yeah, like, when you start to humanise the Rancors, like what Luke does in Return of the Jedi, it's not okay. Like, and there should be consequences to that. 
<laughs> just being stupid, ignore me. Um, and yeah, like I think my favourite actually of these three episodes is probably the most recent one, Decommissioned. I really liked it. Um, and that's extra impressive because like I didn't really understand a lot of the recurring characters in this because I know that they're people who were in the most recent season of The Clone Wars. Yeah, so do you want to talk about that a bit more, Kirsty? I am hoping that all of this propaganda <laughs> can persuade you to watch season seven of The Clone Wars. Because <laughs> Trace and Rafa are great characters and I was quite pleased to see them show up here. Obviously, it's different because like the focus isn't on them as characters. We don't have a ton of context for what they're doing. They're obviously running a job for someone. We don't know exactly who. Um... <laughs> But yeah, it was nice to see them again. I didn't expect to. You know, I thought they were kind of a one and done for that that arc with Ahsoka in season seven. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think this was probably my favourite of the most recent ones too. It was just a, a really fun kind of like detour mission for them. Yeah, it was really like exciting and well paced. And yeah, there's just some really nice stuff with like Omega getting into trouble. <sighs> which is what she seems best at doing, bless her heart. Um, and yeah, there's an especially tense sequence where she kind of like ends up in like a junk pile that's been incinerated. And it's like total Toy Story 3 vibes. I said this on Twitter, so this won't be a shock to anyone who follows me there. But yeah, it's so transparent that that's what they were paying homage to. But mm. it's a great thing to pay homage to because it's a very effective sequence. So well done. Yeah, I remember being a bit shaken when i saw that in toy story 3 i was like yeah. wow this is intense <laughs> consider me harrowed <laughs> yeah it's really good um and yeah so obviously at the end the sisters are like making contact with their client and the client is very deliberately kept mysterious like what percentage are you at in terms of saying it's ahsoka or not ahsoka um I'm not sure because I maybe I need to watch it again. But you know when um, Rafa's she's talking to her droid and she says something like "patch him through," mm. and I'm like, "Are you talking about the person you want to talk to, or are you like putting some information into him?" I couldn't quite work out what that meant, so I was like, "Is she referring to this character as a him?" Mm. Um, yeah, in that no, case, I didn't, it wouldn't be. Ahsoka. I don't remember that. Um, I need to go back and watch it again. See, so yeah, if they do refer to the characters as a him, that would seem to exclude Ahsoka. It also which just would make seem... it more interesting to me. So I'd kind of prefer that. You know, at the end of their arc with Ahsoka, they're pretty. Uh, they're pretty. I, I just the way that she talks there, it doesn't sound to me like she's talking to Ahsoka. She doesn't right. sound like super familiar with this person, but I could be wrong. Um. But you know, it's Star Wars. And it's Filoni, so I'm going to brace myself for it being Ahsoka and her showing up. Yeah, I think I'll prepare myself to be disappointed that it's Ahsoka. And I know that sounds like weird to people, because obviously that's a very popular character. But I don't know, there's just a sense of like overexposure with that character sometimes. You know, where, yeah, she just is in like every show. Um, so yeah, I kind of would prefer to be surprised and have it be someone different. But for now, I'll prepare for it to be Ahsoka. And if it's Ahsoka, I, I'm happy for everyone who likes to see more of that character. But yeah, I, I'll, at the back of my mind, I'll just be thinking, oh, come on, Filoni, please, really. 
I mean, it also could be Rex. Isn't Rex mm-hmm. going to show up? He was in the trailer. Yeah. That's and they point. they could know Rex through Ahsoka. Yes. Yeah. No, because that she's basically she's saying like, hey, there's this bad batch here. There's these clones, and I feel like that would be of interest to him specifically. Yeah. No, that would make a lot of sense. I hadn't crossed my mind. Um, but yeah, I really do need to watch um, the final season of the Clone Wars. Please I feel it's do. Gonna be- <laughs> oh, I feel it's going to become more and more relevant, basically. I'll tell you what, you know, people have kind of mixed feelings on the Bad Batch arc, which is the first few episodes of season seven. But if you're curious about Echo and like how he joins the group and why he is the way he is, like what happened mm-hmm. to him, I-, I would recommend it. You know, it's not as character focused because the the characters kind of driving that episode are like, you know, Anakin and Rex and other characters, but the Bad Batch are there and, and obviously it's important to see like their formation. And also it might be interesting to see the before times with Crosshair, kind of get a sense of his relationship with them before everything went south. Yeah, no, you're right. That would all be like very highly, highly relevant, shall we say, <laughs> to the Bad Batch. So yeah, I will get on that. Um, I've got a busy week coming up. This is my birthday next week. Um, but yeah, I will fit in when I can. Okay. And especially okay. those last four episodes. They're, they're yes. brilliant. Okay. Anyway, perfect. I'll, I'll stop. No, you've put no. it on my radar, Kirsty, so thank you. <laughs> um, okay. It cool. only took me like a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I can do it in less than that, then I'll feel a sense of accomplishment. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yep. So the meat of our episode this time is going to be the final part of our prequel fandom discussion series, which we've subtitled Everything Changes, Nothing Changes. So yeah, if you haven't already, I recommend going back and listening to the first two parts on Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones fandom. Um, but yeah, like, how do you feel about reaching the end of this era in podcasting, Kirsty? I'm kind of sad. I've enjoyed this series. Oh, I mean, it all started with having Liam on, and then yes. we realised that there's a lot to talk about, and we couldn't squeeze it into just one episode. Kind of reminiscing on like our experiences with the films and how we feel about them now. It kind of opened up this big, beautiful kind of prequel worms. Yeah, no, that's a really great way of expressing it. Yes, it's wild, isn't it? At one point we thought we could discuss all of this in one episode and it's ended up as four separate episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, yeah, says it all. There's just a lot to cover, guys, okay? Um, And yeah, we do want to try and give like as good an overview as possible while obviously acknowledging our limitations because, yeah, there's just no way to capture everything that happened in fandom around the prequels. Um, and we're not even attempting to do that. We're just like taking like a selective ride by, I guess, and just like zoning in on a few fun and interesting aspects of online fandom around that time. Um, so yeah, uh, the place I wanted to start this time was some speculation that I found online from June 2003. So about two years before Revenge of the Sith came out. Um, and yeah, I basically found a post where partially it was quick facts, so establishing what was actually known at that time, and then it was speculation, so what fans hoped slash wanted to see. Um, so yeah, the spelling in this part is absolutely hilarious, Kirsty. So I wish you luck, but will you please read out the quick facts section I have highlighted? Releasing May 25th, 2005, Chewbacca is part of the Episode 3 cast. 
Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi will have a duel. The Republic will fall. Padme will die. Mace Windu will die. Almost all of the Jedi will be wiped out. The Empire will take over. And Palpatine will be crowned Emperor. And that's all completely accurate. (laughs) So people knew a lot about this movie in advance. To be fair, they knew about that duel back in, what, 77? Yeah, like I'm not... Yeah, you're right. I think it was the... (laughs) No, I think it was the Revenge Return of the Jedi novelization. Oh, is it? I yeah, it was I the think first so. One. Yeah, I, like I'll probably be making a fool of myself and be wrong, but I, I'm willing to like risk that and say it was the Return of the Jedi novelization. Okay, well, um, a long time yeah. ago. Exactly, decades before this, essentially. We should know um, that because it wasn't that long ago we read those novelizations, but our <laughs> <laughs> brains are like Sifs. <laughs> yeah, I thought you said brains like Sif for a minute. <laughs> That's when you know you're in Star Wars mode, um, but yeah, like so. Basically, there weren't ro- there wasn't really room for like massive plot surprises. Basically, in this film, you know, it was more down to like the details and like the side characters and stuff. That was what people were focusing on more in their speculation. Um, so yeah, this person continued with their speculation. Um, so could you read out their speculation points, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. It is rumoured that the title is The Fall of the Republic. I don't know. Sounds kind of cheesy, but we'll find out soon. Qui-Gon Jinn will return? (laughs) If you have seen The Phantom Menace, then you know that Qui-Gon did not disappear like Obi-Wan and Yoda. It has also been rumoured that Qui-Gon is Jedi Master Cypher DS. I don't believe that one. (laughs) Obi-Wan versus Anakin. Anakin and Obi-Wan will have a massive fight at the end of the duel, Anakin will fall in the molten pit and be burned severely. They got that from the novelization. Exactly. That's <laughs> Mace Windu versus Boba Fett. It is rumoured that Boba Fett will kill Mace Windu. No one knows how. I want to believe that one because Mace killed Django, but if he can so easily kill Django, I don't think Boba could kill Mace. But it's also been rumoured that a group of bounty hunters will attack him. Will Han Solo return? Chewbacca's back, so where's Han? I thought they were inseparable. I I just need to pause here to say that this person spelled inseparable like this. I-N-S-E-P-P-E-R-A-T-B-A-L-L. This was before the era of autocorrect. <laughs> You're a much kinder person than me. <laughs> They're just so excited. They're like keyboard smashing. Um, you know, Han was almost going to be back. He's in the concept art for the, yeah. the, the art book, you know? Exactly. They were thinking along the same lines as George, basically. Um, But yeah, one of the most interesting things about this to me is the obsession. And it is an obsession because it didn't just come up here. I found endless forum posts about it and it just would have been too much. We could have just done an episode on this line of speculation. But people were obsessed with the idea of Boba Fett killing Mace Windu. Like, and it's hilarious because I just had completely forgotten that, like, mace kills Django in attack of the clones so i was mystified as to why this was such a common line of speculation but that is why well it's a pretty big moment when um boba's there like holding his helmet you know yeah so maybe that is him kind of vowing revenge on the person who killed him yeah no that's true and it's not like a completely wild line of speculation it's just i don't know like if sad is the right word and i i mean sad as in like genuinely sad um, that so many people invested like hope in this line of thought, wanting there to be some resolution to that, and there was literally nothing. Like Boba Fett does not appear 
in that film. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was a lot to cover on Revenge of the Sith. They couldn't get to everyone. And yeah, Boba's story is told elsewhere. I mean, he does. I mean, it, oh, again, spoilers for the Clone Wars, but that kind of thing it crops up there too. His hatred of Mace. Okay. Yeah, so it definitely has precedent. And that's another reason for me to watch even more of the Clone Wars. So I presume that's in the earlier seasons, right? Yes. Not the final one. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, anything else that stands out to you there, Kirsty? I think it's mostly quite reasonable as speculation goes. I guess Qui-Gon kind of does return in that Yoda references him and says that Obi-Wan can contact him. He's managed to become a Force ghost. Yeah. And I really do hope and want to see that in the new Obi-Wan show, to oh, be honest. I feel like they could get Liam Neeson back for that. Yeah, same. Especially if it's just a voice. Like, although part of me would love to see, like, Liam Neeson as, like, the translucent force ghost. That'd I don't think... Oh, sorry, I'm bringing up Clone Wars again. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. pushing my glasses up my nose here. Well, <laughs> actually, in the later seasons of the Clone Wars, we do hear his voice talking to Yoda. But it is just Ooh. a voice. He doesn't... Okay physically manifest because i've seen some people like explaining oh that's the reason that you don't see ben solo as a force ghost he doesn't quite have the he hasn't got to the point where he can like physically manifest yet it's more like he's a voice that could talk to someone in the force so we we might not see him in obi-wan but we could hear him yeah was it liam neeson doing the voice in the clone wars yes pretty sure ah okay Either that or it's someone who does a fantastic impression of him. Okay, cool. Well, if he'll go back for the Clone Wars, he'll definitely go back for a TV show. So, <laughs> Well, obviously, Clone Wars is a TV show. You know what I mean, a live-action TV show. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I also found another forum post from June 2003. Um, and this is just like from a completely random forum, a completely random person. But... Could you read out this very brief line of spec, Kirsty? A long time ago, I heard something about the final fight between Anakin and Obi-Wan being started over a love affair or perceived love affair between Obi-Wan and Padme. And I find that really interesting because that is something that was definitely there in like the earlier scripts for Revenge of the Sith. And it's still there quite strongly in the novelization of Revenge of the Sith which I'm excited to read. I honestly think there's a, a reading of the movie itself that Anakin gets pretty jealous of the fact that Padme's there with Obi-Wan. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that's still there, like on the Mustafar scene. Yeah, you try to take her... You, oh, what does he say? You, you're you turning her against you me. You will not take her from me! <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> you have done that yourself! <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous, you and McGregor Kirsty. Just great. Um, and... Yeah, I think it was just that in earlier iterations of the film, it was like there, like in earlier scenes as well. I think there might have been like earlier interactions with like Padme and Obi Wan, or at least Anakin thinking about interactions. I kind of love that too. And yeah, I really wish I'd leaned more into that in the final film, to be honest. So I do think it's really tantalizing that stuff on Mustafar. So it like takes it to a more, I don't know, like a grounded emotional level, you know, because mm. that is something that happens all the time in real life relationships, jealousy, you know, and like projecting things like where nothing is actually happening. You know, that all feels very real and tangible in a way that I think can really elevate Star Wars and make the emotion hit much harder. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting to me that knowledge of even something quite subtle like that was floating around in the fandom quite early. 
Yeah, I do like the idea, as you say, of it not actually being an affair, like nothing on Obi-Wan and Padme's part, but it's all kind of in Anakin's perceptions and even like maybe a sense of Palpatine kind of stoking that insecurity. Yeah, Mm. exactly. It just gives it some more emotional maturity, I think. That's really interesting. Okay, cool. So we've been very lucky to have input from our email correspondent, Allronix, across these episodes. Um, and they have provided some very entertainingly worded thoughts on the Revenge of the Sith era <laughs> fandom. Uh, so yeah, could you read out their email, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. We were wondering how the Jedi Purge would actually happen. Who would or would not escape? What caused Anakin's turn? If Padme had anything to do with the Rebellion's founding? After all, expanded universe material showed her being pals with Bail Organa. How the Mustafar duel would play out, because that was an expanded universe material, but not covered in detail. There was a lot of anger with female fans on how Padme was handled. She went from badass queen to doormat, at least in the theatrical film. And the whole died of a broken heart? Oh, heck no. There was a lot of Mr. Lucas, that's bull. With Padme, there was this sense going into The Phantom Menace that she was kind of going to be a Leia XP? Is that- yeah, I don't know what she means there, actually. I must Maybe say. I'll, just, I'll remove that word. That yeah. she was kind of going to be a Leia, and no real surprise there. But remember that EU, now Legends, already had a lot of the good stuff. Mon Mothma served as the Chancellor of the New Republic. Leia was already a Jedi and a politician with three kids and her ex-smuggler boy toy. <laughs> Mara Jade was a big player on the board. We had the Hapes matriarchy, so Padme was shaping up to be a good addition to an existing pantheon. Now, there was a lot of grumbling on Attack of the Clones' alleged romance plot. Padme, hun, he just confessed to slaughtering an entire village, run the other way, and how she was kind of being played for the damsel until the arena scene. The conversation on Revenge of the Sith pointed out that she was heavily pregnant, which would have reduced her role anyway, but when the leak came out about her being a founding member of the Rebellion, and it ended up cut? Ugh. There was a lot of talk about no way was it a broken heart, along with detailed lists of other possible causes of death, some of which might not be immediately detectable. Yeah. I love that email. <laughs> it's just so like entertainingly written, like with the details, like the ex-smuggler boy toy. <laughs> I just, yeah, that fills me with delight. And a lot of those concerns are still circulating and valid today. Yeah, very much. Like, And it's kind of reassuring to see that there was that anger on Padme's behalf right from when the movie came out, mm. you know, because... I still think she's a great character in the prequels and I think Natalie did a really good job but I totally agree with the perspective that there was a lot of wasted potential especially in Revenge of the Sith like it's a really good film in showing the tragedy of that relationship with Anakin and Padme but it kind of like sidelines Padme like as a person in her own right you know you don't really get that sense for her as a politician anymore or her as someone like driving efforts like with the rebellion and that sort of thing and yeah as Auronix points out in their email like that's especially frustrating because we know that stuff was in there at one point and it was filmed it was like in the cut until quite late and when you watch the scenes they're actually really interesting and they add that extra dimension to Padme's character so yeah I like seeing that justifiable anger on Padme's behalf yeah, there is almost this sense that like once she's pregnant and focused on the babies, that's all she can focus on, which is obviously mm. not the case because you see her in and out of the Senate. Like She still has scenes there, but she is almost like more of an observer. 
Yeah. And it's just strange. Like, people keep working when they're pregnant a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> I need to fix up the baby's room. <laughs> like, which is completely valid. It's completely valid that you, you need to fix up the baby's stuff. room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's obviously still important to her. She's obviously, like, devastated by what's happening to the Republic. But then still there's this sense of, like, passivity, which is just not the way she is before that. Yeah. There are a lot of theories about, like, you know, there's the discussion with the droid and Obi-Wan, like, oh, well, she's healthy, but she's just kind of giving up on life. It's like, maybe there is, like, a dark side thing happening there. Yeah. And I know that's been a very popular theory, actually, for a long time, that it was Palpatine interfering somehow to cause her death. Because, yeah, when he tells Vader that he killed Padme and there's the infamous no scene, um, Palpatine looks really happy. You know, you can tell he's just like totally lapping that up. He loves like seeing Vader's pain in that moment. And yeah, I, I think it's not stated outright, but it's very easy to see that as an explanation for how Padme died. So I think that line of speculation was very legitimate. It's also a bit <laughs> strange that it's made a point of like, oh, well, she's physically fine when her husband knocked her unconscious while she was <laughs> heavily pregnant. Like she's out of it the entire time they're fighting there. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, well, if she's dying, she's not physically fine, is she? <laughs> yeah, it's just weird. The breath know. was knocked out of her. Like, I understand why they chose not to go that way. So I feel like it's almost like too brutal if she like dies of domestic violence, basically. Oh, yeah. You know, but if like it had actually been this result of what happened on Mustafar, that would be much more realistic, of course. But yeah, I think George wanted to avoid that. I have to think it's a factor. That's not yep. something that would happen to you without consequence. <laughs> exactly. So then we have a really lovely email from our friend Charlotte at Skytalkers. Um, could you read out her email, please, Kirsty? Hey, Rachel and Kirsty, huge fan, and I've been loving this prequel fandom deep dive. I was only starting to get into online fandom when Revenge of the Sith hit. One of the best memories, though, was engaging with the Star Wars fan club Hyperspace, which started in 2004. It granted you online access to a lot of features, most prominently probably the blogger section where you could engage in meta and discussions and create your own avatar, all hosted on the Star Wars website. It was probably my first foray into writing Star Wars theories and what things really meant to the story. I had a really good experience and was able to talk about Anakin and Padme's relationship without judgement, as there was a whole contingent of prominent Anidala meta writers on that site. One of the fun things on the blogs was that they had their own emojis before emojis were even a thing. You'd react with Yoda emotes and rate things one out of five Yodas. It was cute. I missed the Hyperspace subscription membership because it was a great way to cultivate fandom. The site had a lot of fun features like webcams. The filming of Revenge of the Sith had a live webcam. Who can even believe that now? Production diaries, the Clone Wars micro-series notes, and much more, similar to Star Wars Insider features. The Revenge of the Sith fandom during this time was really interesting because it really was meta-focused since this was the last movie and everyone could talk about the six films as a complete piece. Love the podcast. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Charlotte. We obviously love Sky Talkers too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're awesome too. <laughs> um, and yeah, honestly, this email was so helpful because I personally hadn't been aware of Hyperspace and that blogging platform. And yeah, you can actually still access a lot of the blogs and stuff, like using the Wayback Machine. And that was amazing. You know, it's a total portal into a different time in the fandom. 
and yeah it's just delightful so this this amazing diversity of what people were writing about and the conversations people were having and yeah it was really cool i love the thought of star wars like official site hosting fan discussions like that they should do it now <laughs> be interesting to see how that goes yeah a while ago i was doing some research into the history of star wars shipping and apparently star wars did a thing where i think in the late 90s they offered people like the opportunity to make their own fan sites like that were subdomains of the official stars.com website basically and at first that seemed really attractive but then they read the small print and they realized that stars.com would basically own whatever content you posted on those fan sites and there was also like issues about like not allowing certain kinds of content like specifically like explicit fan fiction and especially like slash fan fiction and stuff mm. and so people ultimately just did well clear i think a lot of the time from that endeavor but it seems like the blogs thing was much more successful and really took off it was popular for quite a few years mm. and yeah just stuff like the fact they had a webcam you know showing like the bloody set of revenge of the sith that's just can you imagine there being like a webcam for the rise of skywalker i would love to I mean, see that why webcam not? just <laughs> <laughs> i think it's great marketing it allows people to follow along and feel like they're part of it as long as you're not showing like major plot points <laughs> <laughs> yeah no like I would love to know what that webcam was showing specifically, if it was just like one angle, like of one set, or if it like moved around and stuff. Hopefully, so yeah. If you around. know that, email in and tell us because I would love to find out more about that webcam. I wonder if we can find that footage somewhere. Does it? Someone should put it on YouTube or something. Someone yeah. somewhere has it, surely. Oh, I really hope so. It'd be sad if it was lost to time. At the very least, you'd like to think Lucasfilm still has that footage, but <laughs> yeah, whether they'd put it anywhere is a different story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was actually really impressed by the sophistication of the Star Wars blogging platform, especially compared to the websites I had been looking at. Um, it looks really like quite slick. You know, it's obviously still really dated by modern standards, um, and it has like cute old-fashioned fonts and stuff. But yeah, it's very like functional everything's clear nice layout so well done to the web designer who made the blogs platform who did well um and yeah so basically individuals could create their own blogs that had their own like focus and styles and stuff um and yeah i found just a few so one for example is the emotional galaxy some fans go for the starships some for the games some for the battles some for the creatures I'm all about the tears Anakin sheds on Mustafar, Padme's ruminations, Luke's need to save his father, Count Dooku's real thoughts as he talks to the incarcerated Obi-Wan on Geonosis, I wish I could find that meta, and all the feelings that make Star Wars characters tick. And I love this person, I feel they'd make a great Tumblr meta writer, don't you Kirsty? Yeah, I want to know who it is, maybe they have a podcast. Charlotte, that's not you is it? If it is you, please raise your hand. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, could you read out the second one I found, Kirsty, that I've highlighted? Diary, a temple archive girl. What's the girl to do when she has a penchant for all things Jedi and an unwavering desire to raid Padme's closet? She's forced to come up with a viable combination of the two. 
hence the Temple Archive girl, is who I'd want to be in the Star Wars galaxy. Putting up with Madame Nu would be a small price to pay to be surrounded by the largest collection of information in the galaxy, and being a non-Jedi I'd be able to be a major Coruscanti fashionista. Does it get any better? Politics and lightsabers aside, I find that I'm almost obsessed with what the life of a Coruscanti citizen was like during the prequels. Did they have tabloids? What did they think of the Jedi? This blog will entertain my endless musings on such topics and anything else Star Wars related that collects in my brain lint. Oh, I love that too. Yeah. I love it when you're reading like AU fix and there is like an element of Coruscant as like a fashion capital and like Jedi bodyguards and oh, it's so cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I love like the ability that fans have to like focus in on like the smallest aspects of things that are present in the films and like make them like a focus of their fandom. I think that can be one of the coolest and most creative types of fandom, especially, you know, when you're creating like art and fic and stuff. It's really cool. Um and yeah, this is another person who sounds awesome and I hope that you did cosplay as some of these Coruscanti fashionistas because <laughs> the potential is endless. Um yeah, so that's just like a tiny, tiny selection of these like blog descriptions essentially they have blogs on everything like so for example just on like a screenshot i have of the home page you have like the most recent blog entries and this is from 2006 so a little after revenge of the sith came out um but yeah just on that page alone you have anadala meta you have like a post asking what is a zabrak which is obviously one of the star wars species you have a post about lego cheat codes you have a post from a 13-year-old boy saying it's not bad to cry if Revenge of the Sith makes you sad. Oh. Which, I agree, it's not bad to cry. And you cry your heart out, young man. And now, obviously, an older man, but you know what I mean. Um, and yeah, just that alone, you know, it shows that all sorts of different facets of the fandom were coexisting. And yeah, I think that's really cool. Yeah. I, just, I think we've said it before earlier in the series, but I just love... And I kind of wish we could go back to this time where fandom was contained in these little non, like separate from the sense of social media that we have these days, where people were just kind of already united by their love of this thing and weren't yeah. going to be made fun of. And yeah. Exactly. I feel like, like I might be romanticizing it, you know. Like oh, I think we are for sure. We know, we know from our listeners that there have been huge issues. Yeah, exactly. So there, were, there was a definite dark side to all of this. But I think also because a lot of this was like brand new to people, you know, a lot of the people making these Star Wars blogs, they could have, it could well be like the, the first blog they'd ever had, you know, and the first long form means of expressing themselves on the internet they'd ever had. And I guess there was just a lot of excitement, you know, to have this at your disposal. So as far as I can gather, it was free, you know, and that must have been really exciting um, to just be able to engage with all that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. So we actually, very excitingly, had a few people who were users of the blogging platform, apart from Charlotte, um, who obviously kickstarted this whole thing, um, email us. And one of those was Becca Benjamin, who's a host of Tarkin's Top Shelf in Canassus Castle. Um, and she posted as Viago Angel 2 on the site, um, writing lots of like Anadala meta and character analyses. And yeah, it was really great to hear from her because she was able to throw a bit more light on how the blog site worked and her own experience of using it. 
Um, yeah, could you read out her email, please, Kirsty? This is like an abbreviated version. Mm-hmm. Interaction was a huge part of the site's algorithm in order to select the blog of the day. Basically, you could comment on any of the blogs as long as you had a hyperspace subscription. But unlike Twitter and other apps, the Star Wars blogs had moderators for online hecklers or inappropriate behaviour. Getting back to blog of the day, or what was essentially known as featured blog, was a high honour that we all strive to achieve. The more interaction and views your blog got, the better chances your blog had to become the first thing anyone would see when they went on the official Star Wars site. The site had moderators to keep things tactful, but obviously there were times when conflicts would occur, especially when it came to film content and accuracy. Next would be the meta or shipping. Anidala was huge back in 2002 to 2005, but it was huge in both ways, loving it and hating it. Both sides made their feelings known publicly. In fact, looking back on it now, it compares to the Raylo fandom and the current discourse from those who are not in favour of it. Further proof that history does have a tendency to repeat itself. Yeah, I just want to say it's like affirming to hear that comparison to Raylo made by someone who was active in Phantom back then, mm. because that's an observation we've made ourselves several times in these discussions. Um, but yeah, like, you know, there's always a feeling of, oh, am I just protecting? But yeah, pe- other people are definitely seeing the similarities in the discourse, I think. And even if you think about the language used by someone like Ulronix in their email, you know, they were describing how there was a lot of like derision over like Padme, like just going to Anakin, like after he'd slaughtered the Tuscan Raiders, for example, you know, and people like mocking Padme for still being with Anakin after that. And I guess that sort of sentiment, like, is part of the whole, like, anti-Anadala, like, contingent of things, basically. Um, and, yeah, like, I f- it's interesting to, like, access that again, because I think now Anadala is just so accepted and so baked into the canon of Star Wars that you do still, like, see some discussion around it, you know, and obviously people pointing out, like, the problematic aspects of it. But for the most part, yeah it's just not like a factor anymore you know it is what it is and people just accept it Hmm. i do wonder in the future like hopefully this the discourse around the Raylo aspect kind of does calm down as people kind of just become as you say like to accept that it is part of the story but it is different in that they're never shown as like in an established relationship whereas anakin and padme obviously get married and have children (laughs) yes no, that's true. Like, it's a different type of relationship, I think, is like much more amorphous, I guess, with Raylo. Mm. Um, but yeah, they do have the whole sealed of a kiss thing. So, Canon, baby! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not petty at all. I'm not petty. <laughs> but yeah, I think also hearing about the blog site having moderators, I think that must have made a huge difference. Because yeah, there definitely aren't any moderators on Twitter. <laughs> Self appointed fandom police. Be. <laughs> yeah no that's true they're self-appointed moderators let's yeah they're way, the ones but... that you want to avoid the most <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> really the fact that it had that infrastructure with moderators and stuff is part of why the blogs platform only lasted a few years because at the end of the day moderators would have had to have been paid i imagine and yeah would have taken a lot of upkeep and stuff so yeah it makes sense it was discontinued a few years after the prequels wrapped up mm. Um, yep, so I just briefly wanted to read out one of the, like an excerpt from one of the blog posts that Becca put up, because I thought it would just give like a nice flavour of the sort of writing that was being posted back then. 
Um, and this one is from a piece titled Sometimes There Are Things No One Can Fix and it basically compared Anakin's descent to the dark side to an addiction. So, I truly believe that Anakin was diseased by the Sith. He lost himself in the feeling of guiltless pleasure of no consequence. In the process of his fall, he lost everything that was sacred and all that he had loved. As do most addicts of drug abuse or alcohol abuse, some can overcome their sickness and begin a new life. Though, like Anakin, those who have subjected themselves and their loved ones to the abuse of such addictions must want to stop it. It is up to the addict, not their family, to achieve this. That person must help themselves to restore the balance and harmony into their lives once more. And yeah, the piece right, obviously goes on to say that that's why Luke is effective in the end, because it's not like Luke makes a decision for Vader. It's that Luke being there causes Vader to like reassess things and actually make that good choice, you know, to turn to the light and give up that, I guess, addiction to the dark side. So yeah, I just thought that was like a neat little post and it's emblematic of the way in which people were looking at these characters on a deeper level back then. Mm. I saw this similar kind of discussion about Kylo after The Force Awakens Mm. and I think it works well for people and people find a lot of meaning in it because the dark side is such like a nebulous, vague thing. Like They purposely don't define it very strongly and it's open to interpretation so that anyone can see an element of themselves or someone they care for in these characters yeah, and, and how they lose their way. Um, so it is really powerful. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, it really does, like, resonate strongly with that, like, early 2016 Kylo meta. I think I even wrote meta in this vein <laughs> for Kylo, you know. Um, and, yeah, I think it just exemplifies how Star Wars can be at its most powerful when it does leave a lot to the interpreter like that mm. because yeah it means people can make it really personal to their own history sorry and i'm just like repeating what you said basically but yeah, <laughs> essentially i really agree with you kirsty that's a good observation <laughs> cool um yep and then we also had neil reach out he was another user of the blogs platform and he sent in an email recounting his happy memories of using it, which is awesome. So yeah, could you read out Neil's email, please, Kirsty? Hi there. I was part of the hyperspace community for several years, right up until the end, and they're definitely the happiest years I've ever had as a Star Wars fan. The positivity, camaraderie, and downright fun of those blogging years without the need to create a bubble are in total contrast to the vitriol of today's online experience. Everyone was there purely through their love of the saga and for no ulterior agenda. I met many of my closest friends on the blog. Folks who started out as strangers then became a part of my family, meeting up at conventions or other opportune times, popping in for a cup of tea on a road trip. They even created the most beautiful baby shower gifts to my two children born a few years after the blogs closed. For many, it was a vo forum to voice theories and to enjoy thoughtful discourse. For others, me included, it was a place to be daft and creative. I wrote fanfic and gonk droid poetry, made cartoons, turning to the dork side, and showed how to make a cuddly, salacious crumb. I even scored the opportunity for a bit of immortality by providing the backstory to the episode one Rolo droid through the What's the Story feature. 2007 was the highlight year, um, Celebration 4 and Celebration Europe, but all of my memories of the boards and the people are warm and fuzzy. Good times. Neil. Oh, <laughs> that's so nice. It is really nice. Yeah. I just love hearing about like such like, purely happy 
like unqualified nice experiences of being in online fandom i feel like that's much rarer than it should be you know like i have lots of happy experiences of like making friends online and like great discussions and stuff but there's always like that like hackles raised aspect to it you know where like you have to be on the defensive a bit because it's like twitter and people can come from any side you know but it feels <laughs> yeah. like this place was much more like protected and like supportive environment in a way which yeah is really great and i love the thought of gonk droid poetry i would <laughs> love to find your gonk droid poetry neil so yeah thank you for mentioning that <laughs> yeah it's wonderful and i uh, yeah that thing about they're not being an ulterior agenda and people genuinely being there like for the fandom however you felt about the story and if you were passionately arguing on either side it was through the passion of the story itself whereas these days as we've talked about plenty of times there is like this monetized aspect of some of the hate which yeah. feels so cynical and like kind of antithetical to what being a fan should be about right yeah exactly. oh we are romanticizing it <laughs> yeah like and like again i think it's nice because we like we have talked about like the crappier aspects of like online fandom around this time but i think it is nice to also remember there were like really great fantastic experiences people had and also those like real human connections you know the fact that neil made friends who brought like his kids baby shower presents you know like that's awesome and it's not something you would automatically think would arise from being a star wars fan like with a blog <laughs> but it 100% happens and yeah it's the sort of thing that still happens now you know people make real life friendships over this stuff and yeah it's one of the nicest aspects of being a fan mm-hmm, definitely let's move into more of the reception to the film and people's experiences of watching it um, we had a few emails about that so the first one we had was from Josh could you read out Josh's email Kirsty? Mm-hmm. hi Rachel and Kirsty. hope you guys are doing well I was 17 when Revenge of the Sith came out and just finishing my junior year of high school. I was at an odd stage for Star Wars with a whole lot going on, at least compared to when I was 14 or 11. School, friends, sports, girls, university applications, etc. I remember that the buzz leading up to it, at least among my friends and family, seemed to be about how we were finally getting a prequel entry with a darker, more serious tone. For a lot of people, that was an exciting thing to hear, because there was a general consensus that episode 1 had been too childish, and episode 2 had been kind of corny. But for me at least, there was somewhat less excitement and anticipation compared to how desperate I was to see episode 1, or again later, how excited I was to see The Force Awakens when I was in my late 20s, but I know I still went out and saw it on opening weekend with some of my buddies. Here's what I remember about my first early impressions of the movie. I loved that close-up of Vader's mask starting to breathe with the steam moving around. I loved the opening action scene with Anakin and Obi-Wan flying through the vulture droids and enemy ships, but I still left feeling somewhat dissatisfied. I felt then, as I felt today, that episode 3 sometimes takes itself so seriously that it often loses that sense of fun and lightness that is so critical for Star Wars. I didn't love that the winner of the climactic battle of the trilogy was decided by higher ground. And I was totally taken off guard by Padme dying in childbirth of a broken heart. Didn't love that. At the time, I probably agreed with my friends and said that it was easily the best of the prequels, but sometimes, today, I think it might be my least favourite. At the very least, it's the one I want to watch the least by far of the first six episodes. Hmm. Interesting that your reading of it can change so much over time. Yeah. Like, I can definitely see that, though. It's like, 
I don't have very clear memories of that time, as I mentioned like in the Liam episode, but I remember the same thing that Josh remembers, where there was this really pervasive like attitude where this is the one that's going to make it right this is going to be like the dark serious one that we've all wanted all this time you know that was like a really strong narrative around Mm -hmm. revenge of the sith and it was established in the marketing as well it wasn't just people like coming out of nowhere um and yeah i i think there was kind of like a bit of a group thing in relation to revenge of the sith you know where like it did collectively have a much more positive response than the previous two had and like that's also reflected in reviews and stuff you know if you like look at the metacritic scores like it just shoots up revenge of the sith and it's obviously not like considered to be a masterpiece by the critics or anything but like it's more like solid good you know which is better than the other two prequels got and yeah it is interesting how like perceived darkness is considered so desirable often Mm. you know especially in these like geeky slash nerdy properties you know like darkness is equated with like quality maturity yeah maturity (laughs) and yeah obviously that isn't necessarily the case at all sometimes it's the opposite of the truth like you know the darker it can be the less good it can be and while i do like revenge of the sith more than it sounds like josh does i i absolutely do like understand that criticism you know of it potentially taking itself too seriously sometimes yeah you know i sound like a real wuss here because i do like revenge of the sith but it's not one i reach to often because it's so sad <laughs> yeah i'm like you know usually if i want to watch star wars i'm in kind of a fun mood or a romantic mood you know something that's just a bit more playful yeah. And Revenge of the Sith, obviously it ends on the hopeful note of you know that Luke and Leia are there for the future. Like you have yes. to have that at the end for that sense of optimism. But overall, it's just so sad and bleak. And I really love Anakin and Padme and they're just completely destroyed. And he, Obi-Wan is too, isn't he? Yeah. And left all alone. And it's just, it's too sad. <laughs> yeah. No, it is really like upsetting. Like rewatching it yesterday, like it cut me up a bit because of how they obviously like cut between Padme having the children and like Anakin going into the Vader suit and also they cut between like Padme's funeral and like Vader in the Vader suit and oh it's just pretty shattering yeah it's bleak (laughs) yeah so we totally get where you're coming from Josh and (laughs) feel your pain uh cool so then we had another email from Kyle and this one it was a much more positive response. Um, and yeah, so could you read Cole's email out, Kirsty? I remember being so excited for the conclusion of the trilogy that I tried to get as many people as I could to the theatre for a showing. I took a half day off work and bought 28 tickets, then stood in line for almost 90 minutes so that we could get the best seats. We took up more than an entire row at the theatre. Star Wars is best when it can be shared with like-minded friends, and The Revenge of the Sith was no exception. As the movie progressed towards the finale, tension was palpable in the theatre. We all knew it was going to end poorly. We all knew that this all ended in heartache. Such avoidable heartache. I recall shedding a tear as Obi-Wan stood over Anakin, as Anakin's rage literally burnt him up and Padme died. Everything was so visually engaging, beautiful and well shot. But it was a heavy film for Star Wars, and other than Rogue One was the film with the least hope at the conclusion. I'll never forget the people I saw it with and the spectacle of it. It's up there with the Phantom Menace's release for me as highlight event movies I plan to see, and it didn't disappoint. Oh, yeah. I think that's just the, the other side of the coin. 
because I, yep. I I think maybe Carl actually does feel quite similarly to us about it. It just kind of depends on your mood at the time, whether that's going to work for you or not. Yeah, no, exactly, which is totally valid. And yeah, it clearly worked very well for Kyle and he was like in totally the right mindset for it because, wow, taking 28 people <laughs> to go and see it. I don't think I have 28 friends. <laughs> or at least not 28 <laughs> like close friends. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's really great. And it must have been an amazing atmosphere to have like a big group like that. I definitely remember being struck by it. You know, like afterwards, you kind of feel a bit exhausted. Like, mm. oh my God, it's finally over. Like Anakin became Darth Vader and Padme's gone and his friendship with Obi-Wan's ruined. And of course we know how that's going to all be resolved 20 years later, but it's still like a really heavy ending for these characters. Yeah. And I guess especially because at the time, everyone going to see that in the cinema, they probably thought it was the last Star Wars film they were ever going to see. Right. Because at that point, George Lucas still owned Star Wars. And I think he'd been very clear and adamant that, yep, this is it. This is the last one I'm doing. And it was such a different landscape back then. You know, there was no like streaming. There wasn't as big an emphasis on these huge IPs as there is now. And yeah, like all for all anyone knew, like that was the end. And that was the last time that they were getting a Star Wars movie. So it was a huge event film. And yeah, like I think Kyle taking 28 people to see it just exemplifies that anticipation that was for it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So I also like in my research for this, I went on to LiveJournal because LiveJournal was one of the like earliest hubs for that more in-depth, long-form kind of expression that we like came to use in our first foray into Tumblr Phantom. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was curious to see what people on LiveJournal were saying about Revenge of the Sith and how it was received. Um, so there was actually a Star Wars LiveJournal group called Star Wars Girls, so very clear labelling. Um, and there was a poll that was put out just after the film came out and almost all of the users who responded to that poll gave the film an A rating. <laughs> so it oh. clearly went down very well. Um, and I also looked into like individual responses that were written to the film. And I found this one in particular, um, which was very impassioned. So I'll read this out. And it's just a small excerpt from a really long piece. I couldn't read out the whole thing. So... I don't think I'll be able to watch Attack of the Clones again anytime soon without crying the whole way through. I was as spoiled as it is possible to be spoiled without seeing the movie, but one moment totally caught me off guard. Padme waiting in the shadows for Anakin after the battle, and him running, actually running to her and spinning her in his arms. They were so happy, so normal, so young. My heart broke for them all over again. But then the nightmares started. By the way, a fangirlish moment. They are shown sleeping in the same bed. Surely that is the Star Wars equivalent of Full Frontal. Oh my god, I love this. (laughs) This is great. Ship of heaven. (laughs) How tragic that in trying to save Padme, Anakin distances her from him. He tells her everything in the beginning. Powright lies to her before he goes to Mustafar. And Anakin's love is Anakin's downfall. He is so much better than Palpatine. His goals are selfless. Palpy wants power and revenge. Anakin wants peace, justice and immortality. Not for himself, but for his wife. These are all admirable goals. It's just the way he is twisted going about them that damns him. 
In a way, when siding with Palpy against the Jedi, he is picking law over justice, and his desire to have control is so understandable, it's a reaction against powerlessness, a fantasy of a slave. So yeah, total like Tumblr flashbacks when I read that. You know, that could be like written on Tumblr in so many different ways. Um, but yep, that was what Live Journal was for in the mid 2000s. And I love it. I love that passion. I love it. And it's reminding me almost of the Star Wars sequel trilogy fandom, the state that it's in after the rise of Skywalker and like the mm. heartbreak over Raylo. Yes, that's really true. It's like, Especially, oh, I don't like, know if I can watch The Last Jedi again. <laughs> the hand-touching scene. <laughs> yeah. And especially like that focus on like the minutia of like the contact between like your like preferred pairing. Even now, like every week I'll reliably see at least one tweet like breaking down like the smallest aspect of that like Rey and Kylo scene from the end of Rise of Skywalker. You know, it'll be like, look at how he cradles the back of her head as he holds her limp body. You know, and it'll have like 500 likes. (laughs) It's like people are mourning it, you know. Yeah. No, exactly. And I think that's the process you're seeing here. Like, it's people mourning Anadala because there's a lot of beauty to it, but there's also a lot of pain and tragedy to it. And yeah, just the Raylo. The Raylo is blinding me (laughs) with the similarities. Yeah, I I really love that. I wish I'd got to experience live journal. (laughs) Oh, same. Yeah, like, I think I did have a live journal blog back in the day, but I didn't really use it, if that makes sense. And it was much harder to, like, cultivate a community on live journal you know so it was all much more separate than tumblr is mm. like you can share posts in the same easy way that you can on tumblr but yeah it sounds like a very interesting time to be in fandom yeah so i also found this is going back to the stars blogging platform again i on the web on the blog of diary of a temple archive girl whose description we read out before um, she published a interesting blog ruminating on the characterization of Anakin and Padme. Um, and yeah, just reflecting some mixed feelings. So could you read out what they wrote, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Upon viewing Revenge of the Sith, I had a whole what-the-fuck moment from the time Annie issued the force choke on his beloved right through Padme's demise. Jedi order and politics aside, what in the name of Coruscant was he thinking? Granted, Anakin had been under a tremendous amount of stress for a time, and he was tad emotional, but still. Spare her, if not for her, for the child. When he did this, I thought back to his expression when she told him they were expecting. You know, that half-second look where he seems to be thinking, and this is supposed to be a good thing. Could it be that he didn't care about his progeny to begin with? Then there's Padme. By all accounts, she seemed pleased to be pregnant, and was looking forward to being a mother. That being the case, I cannot for the life of me understand why she chose death. I know she loved Anakin and was heartbroken by his fall, but she was also a determined, sometimes stubborn, strong young woman. Her senatorial status aside, she was a former queen of Naboo, and people relied on her. She had the determination to fly to Mustafar to intervene on her errant husband's activities after lying to Obi-Wan about his whereabouts. This is the woman who chooses death? This is the woman who leaves her newborns in the care of others in a galaxy swallowed by darkness? I think she had more reason to live with the birth of the children if nothing else, to protect them from their father. Instead, she left them behind. She left them in a world she would not exist in but had a hand in creating. She left them to a fate she herself would not accept. It seems it turned out that in the end, after all was said and done, Anakin and Padme only had room in their hearts for each other and themselves, a thing that sheer biology couldn't overcome. But that's just how I'm seeing it right now. As with all things, it's subject to change without notice and go in a completely different direction. Oh, all valid. 
this is the yeah. thing with Anakin and Padme. There's there's never going to really be an end to this conversation because there are frustrations with how it's executed and what they do with these characters, even if you love it too. Yeah. No, exactly. Like I think even like the strongest like Anadala shippers have to acknowledge that these are all like understandable like points. You know, like even if you don't necessarily agree with them, which you of course don't have to, like it is there in the film. You know, you are literally told that she's losing the will to live, is spelt out, and that naturally invites the question, but why you have children and shit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh... I mean, it is also, it is a fairy tale, so I don't think we're supposed to take it uber literally, you know? Yeah. And I think in terms of it being a fairy tale, like the very clear message you're getting is I think what this person points out at the end, like it's about Anakin and Padme, like existing like for each other's sake almost, you know, and that's why George Lucas made the decision to parallel their demises like so directly, you know, at the end, because Mm. obviously Anakin is technically still alive because he is Vader, but he's not the person he was before you know Anakin really has gone until that final moment when he comes back with Luke at the end yeah and yeah like and that's the tragic part of it but just because it's a tragedy that doesn't mean someone has to like be okay with it and be like oh yeah I'm cool with that now (laughs) because yeah when people write like this when they get really like stirred up and impassioned it's just because they care so much about the characters and they're so invested and you see exactly the same thing when people write about like Ray's actions and Rise of Skywalker, for example, and saying, but this isn't right. That's not what Ray would do and that sort of thing. You know, it's because they feel they have this really like deep connection to the character and this understanding of them. Mm-hmm. And when the film breaks that somehow, you're just like filled with indignation almost. <laughs> yeah. That's what fuels all the fanfic that comes afterwards. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, Becca actually continued her email and she provided a bit more context into like how that wrap-up to Anadala was received by the fandom and what the general state of mind about it was. So, and yes, we all knew that Anakin's fall from grace was inevitable, but we didn't know how things would play out, especially when it came to Anadala, Anakin and Padme. And that discourse still continues to this very day. Honestly, that's probably one of the biggest issues with Star Wars fandom regarding the prequel trilogy, Padme's death. Although, at the time, most of the fandom felt as if Anakin was solely to blame for everything, not just Padme's death. It was a time where a lot of the fan base felt as though the Jedi were righteous or justified in the way they handled Anakin and their beliefs. Picture Twitter now, if if it was around back then, and when, and when Revenge of the Sith first hit the theatres, and thinking that Order 66, the formation of the Empire, and Palpatine's rise to power was all and only Anakin's fault. Thankfully, we as a fandom have come a long way in, that we, in how we see Anakin's character, and we have George Lucas and Dave Filoni to thank for that. The Clone Wars has helped to really flesh out characters' backstories and arcs in ways that weren't possible through the films alone. And yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, and yeah, I wanted to like wrap up the main part of the discussion on that note because yeah, this ties back to something we were hearing about in our Attack of the Clones episode, which was like the whole like anti-Anakin subculture, basically blaming Anakin for everything. And again, there being the parallels to how people perceive Kylo now. Yeah, it's just <laughs> pretty fascinating because yeah. I think 
the intent to show the Jedi as flawed and making their own mistakes is quite clear in the story. Yeah. You see them mess up and make the wrong choices over and over again and like are told what's happening and refuse to see it. And maybe an element of that is that it's the dark side shrouding everything, as Yoda alludes to, but like that also isn't Anakin's fault personally. That's that's from Palpatine. He's the Sith Lord in the background. Yeah. <laughs> That's just, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to me that that really was a lot of fans' takeaways at the time, that, like, the Jedi in the prequels are supposed to be just, like, flawless gods, I guess. Yeah. I, I think, like, a part of it comes down to, like, the disdain that emotion is treated with sometimes in these, like, fandom spaces. And obviously not, like, in all fandom spaces. I think, like, in shipping fandom in particular, people love emotion. It's about getting as much emotion as you can. Um, but, yeah, like, I'm trying to um, expand on this in an intelligent way. Um, it's basically the idea that, like, Anakin, throughout Revenge of the Sith, he's very highly emotion-driven. You know, there's, like, the recurring, like, nightmares he has about Padme dying and he is like completely wrapped up in his obsession with Padme and wanting to keep her alive no matter what, you know, at any cost. And I feel the film frames that in quite a sympathetic way, you know, like he's obviously misguided, you know, in how he goes about it. But I think the emotions he's feeling and that fear of loss, I think that's all very like understandable and relatable, especially in the context of the preceding two films. Exactly. But I think for other people, like, that is, like, a sign of weakness, you know? It's obviously the whole Jedi thing. You've got to be serene and balanced. And there's obviously that scene where, like, Yoda's counselling Anakin and Anakin's trying to tell him his fears. And Yoda's just like, you must learn to let things go. (laughs) It's like, well, that's not very helpful. (laughs) And to me, I watch that scene and I interpret that as Yoda being a complete waste of space and having (laughs) absolutely zero empathy when he desperately needs to have empathy. But I guess for other people, they see Yoda as just being completely prosaic and sensible and Anakin just being like completely unhinged and off balance and him being at fault for everything. Mm. And I, I don't think Anakin's completely blameless, of course, but I feel more sympathy for him than a lot of people do. Yeah, I think Becca's point about the Clone Wars helping fill in stuff, even with characters like Yoda, you know, we see them kind of addressing their their own dark sides and shadows a bit more. So maybe that is more about acknowledging the fact that things weren't perfect with these characters, um, which, yeah, as you say, seems clear to us, but maybe it wasn't every fan's reading. So... There's no doubt that that series helped move that along a bit more. I just I think that's fascinating because, you know, you're someone who hasn't watched The Clone Wars and yet that's that's all there in the text of the prequel movies for you. Yeah. And obviously, like, I've got to, like, admit, because I'm in all these fandom spaces, I've obviously, like, absorbed through osmosis certain things, you know, about, like, events that happen in, like, extra f- stuff that isn't in the films, basically. Like, and I don't know a great deal about what happens of Anakin and the Clone Wars, but I know some stuff, you know. But I do really strongly believe that, you know, I can feel sympathy for Anakin just on the merits of the films. You know, I, mm. I don't need the Clone Wars for that. But I think Beck is absolutely right in that many people did need the Clone Wars <laughs> to get to that place of feeling sympathy for Anakin and finding him relatable. 
Yeah. Yep. We've been talking a bit recently, haven't we, about, I'm sure lots of fans are really, about what a series like The Clone Wars could do for people's perceptions of the sequel trilogy and those characters and the choices that they make. Yeah. No, and I, I really think that could be one of the best things they could do to rehabilitate the sequel trilogy in lots of people's eyes. And I don't mean, like, explaining why there were all the Snoke jars on Exegol. <laughs> you know, I don't care. You know, I honestly don't care, but I, I'm i just more interested in, like, the character stuff, you know? Mm. Like, there's so many great, interesting characters in the sequels. Like, even someone like Pride, to be honest. I know oh, he's yeah. from, like, a maligned movie, but I love Richard E. Grant, and I think that character has really great strength of presence you know i would love to read like a pride book get like a pride tv show or at least a tv show in which pride appears so that would get like a pride spin-off specifically but yeah you know what i mean i i just think like it could really benefit from it you know and i really hope it's something that they're contemplating doing yeah you know there's no lack of wonderful characters in the sequel trilogy even if they're kind of you step back a bit and think that they're underutilized like Janna, Zori, yeah, Pride, all of these characters throughout all of those movies, really, they just deserve so much and hopefully it will be explored and give them more of that depth and kind of show things a bit more from their perspective and give it maybe a bit more time to marinate because that's another thing, like, there's not a ton of time between those movies like there are with the prequels, obviously. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think there's... There's always going to be potential to kind of um, help fans reassess their initial impressions if if they weren't so favourable. <laughs> Maybe they'll come around a bit more with different stories. Exactly, which yeah is really important. Um, and yeah, just like on a very fun note, like the main part of the discussion is over now. But um, Katie on Twitter like sent through the most like amazing like meme. <laughs> like and it's like a very very early meme basically making fun of the moment where vader goes no after <laughs> learning of padme's death have you seen it Kirsty? i haven't but like click on the link and bring it up okay i can't believe we haven't really talked about prequel memes because the prequel trilogy just gave us so much still I does know. yeah so i just i want to get your response recorded so i'll wait patiently <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i love that <laughs> it's great isn't it <laughs> oh my gosh i'm so glad i got you to watch that that's just perfect um, <laughs> it's that and um count dooku on his speeder <laughs> yes <laughs> so good <laughs> it's amazing um because yeah like i think what we now recognize as meme culture for the most part it wasn't really a thing in like 2005 and like part of that has to be remembered is because the internet was so much more primitive then it wasn't as easy to like share images and stuff as it is now like people usually like had their own websites it was all very like isolated and cut off from everything else and it was harder to share things and when you did share things it was usually like as links you know which obviously things could still spread in a huge way as links but it wasn't that like instant gratification, like visual medium that you find like on Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook and all these other social media sites. They just didn't exist back then. So like what you see after Adventure of the Sith is basically like this proto meme culture 
where you get stuff like that amazing like Vader on a roller coaster going no (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I find that so funny (laughs) it it, it just is amazing isn't it it shows how timeless it is Um, and yeah it's really funny and it really is like what would become like the whole prequel memes subreddit you know which god it probably has like millions of subscribers at this point but it's so fascinating because that has become a really defining part of how the internet views those movies now mm-hmm. you know like we focused a lot on like the shipping and like the like meta and the serious analysis side of things and like our discussion of online fandom but there's obviously all these other facets to it including the a- aspect which is largely about taking the piss and having fun with it <laughs> and yeah i find that like fascinating it started so early and it just became a complete monster as time went by yeah it's wonderful and you see that you know the reiterations of that in the sequel trilogy now too it's just kind of baked into the fandom experience isn't it it's so much fun yeah exactly i think there was a sequel meme subreddit as soon as force awakens came out i believe (laughs) and yeah they're still going quite strong um obviously not as like prevalent as prequel memes because prequel memes is just like a monster (laughs) um but yeah still very popular so I'm really glad to see that there because there's plenty of fun, fun jokes and memeable moments to be had in those films. Um, so yeah, I think that's most of it. Um, do you have any final thoughts, Kirsty? Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of sad to be leaving the prequels again. Every time yeah. we get to the end of a series, I'm like, oh, that's kind of me done thinking about this aspect of Star Wars again for a while. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, although we did mention like perhaps doing an episode on the fandom of the original trilogy, and I would still like to do that. It will just take a bit more research, you know, because fandom then obviously wasn't online, and the main records you can find of like fandoms in like interactive fandom is like in the letters pages of like magazines and like fanzines and stuff. So yeah it's not impossible to research that sort of thing but it's just more challenging so yeah that is i think something it would we can do even harder to build a sense of like a complete picture obviously that's not what we're trying to do and we do say so but it would it's so much more vague isn't it yeah and there's not like a a place like the internet for people to actually congregate and discuss it yeah exactly and it was just so much more individual back then you know people had their own individual like thoughts about the films and their own feelings about the characters and stuff and if they were really passionate they might write a letter you know to like the science fiction magazine or the star wars comic or something but for the most part they just kept those thoughts themselves you know and now those people have probably forgotten those thoughts or they're not aware of people online caring about the fact they ever had those thoughts you know so it's very hard to get those back yeah we'll do our best we'll see (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah if you don't hear anything else about that that's because i couldn't find enough to make it worthwhile (laughs) as an episode so sorry for making false promises (laughs) oh gosh but yeah no that was always that was fun and as always thanks so much to everyone who sent in their emails and their contributions it was so so helpful in putting this together and we wouldn't have an episode without you really so yeah thank you yeah thank you everyone i'm glad people seem to have enjoyed the series yeah no definitely it was really fun to record and research so it's nice that it's resonating um okay cool so we'll wrap up 
I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye! Bye!